nail that. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Revelation chapter 15 as we continue in this amazing journey through this amazing part. We say that word a lot, and that word's in this text a lot today. Um, earlier this week, Zabiullah Majahid, I probably mispronounced that name. Newsweek magazine says he's more than likely to be the uh, new minister of information and culture in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. But he was quoted in an interview saying that music is forbidden in Islam. Now, Islamic scholars will take issue with that and, in fact, will say that that's not what the Quran teaches. But he, he said, music is forbidden in Islam. And he went on and said, we're hoping that we can persuade people not to do such things instead of pressuring them, as, as happened before under the previous reign of the Taliban. That is not at all what Christian scriptures teach. All right. I'm just making that contrast so we will understand this. And I believe with all my heart that the song of the redeemed in Afghanistan will not be squelched out by anyone or anything. Amen. It will not. And so we're commanded, as I mentioned a minute ago, over and over in Scripture to sing. In fact, we're even told that God sings over us as his redeemed people. And so in the Psalms alone... Depending on which version you're using, anywhere from 60 to 65 times, we're told to sing. And that doesn't count the the phrase singing and how many times it's referenced. Relevant to our passage today, we we read over in the the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles about how the ark, we're going to see the ark in just a minute, but how the ark was brought into its its resting place there in 1 Chronicles. And when it was brought in there, David's song of thanks was over and over to sing. In fact, it says in, in 1 Chronicles 16 that he appointed Levites, some to sing, some to play their harps and lyres, some to sound the cymbals, some were appointed to blow the trumpets. So the instrumentalists, the choir, everybody was called out by God to be a part of this. And then it says in in verse 9, sing to him, sing praise to him. It says over in verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. It says over in verse 33 that the trees of the forest sing for joy. We'll see that again even in our passage today. So singing is is something that we are called to do. And over and over in the scriptures, we see people singing as they do here. We see people singing because of because give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Over and over in the scriptures, we see people singing for because of the love of God. But but what about singing because of his wrath? What about singing in light of his judgment? That's that's what we find in today's passage. That's what we find in, in Revelation 15. And it's important that we have a good, heavenly, biblical perspective on this whole idea of God's judgment. The scriptures are clear. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm sorry, it's Revelation, I mean, it's Romans 14. Paul says in 2 Timothy that one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That's the reality of Scripture. And the good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son so that whoever would believe in him would not have to be afraid of this judgment, that we would have life. Jesus has come to save us and to save those who put their faith in him so that we don't have to fear this judgment. He delivers us from the wrath to come, the New Testament says. So that's the promise that we have. I love the way Danny Aiken put this. One day God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Because of what he did for sinners. One day God's wrath will be poured out on sinners. Because of what they did with Jesus. You see that? God's wrath is poured out on Jesus in your stead. Or God's wrath is poured out on you. Should you refuse Christ. So it's, it's, it's what... what Joel Gregory called back in my seminary days the dark side of the gospel. That verse 18 that follows John 3.16 that says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already. And as we saw in Revelation chapter 14, those who fall among that will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. That's, that's the just wrath of God. Now, the details of how that's going to be finally poured out are what we're coming to here in this amazing part of Revelation. And, and, and one writer has called it the prelude to Armageddon here in chapter 15. The prelude to Armageddon. So we, we, we took a break last week as Scott was leading us through that. Just a really good job, brother. Thank you for leading us through um, that passage, those passages in First John. But just to kind of remember the context here, of course, we have the letters to the seven churches there in the first two chapters, at first three chapters rather, and then in Revelation chapter four, we're taken into the very throne room of God. Revelation chapter five, sharing that throne room is this one, this Lamb who was standing as though slain. And the question is asked, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? And this one, Jesus, is the one who is worthy to take those scrolls, that scroll and open its seals. And, and in chapter 6, he begins to unseal those seals as we see those preliminary judgments being poured out. And do you remember the fifth seal? Let me remind you of it because it's relevant to the passage today. In Revelation 6, that fifth seal is broken. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We have brothers and sisters in Christ in places around the world who are, who are wondering that, crying that, praying that today. I read of one Afghan pastor last week whose 16-year-old daughter was snatched out of his hands and taken by the Taliban into sex slavery. Marriage, they called it. And yet in that same testimony, he stood on and professed and took great confidence in the sovereignty of God 
and the purposes of God in that. But his cry, no doubt, is, how long, O Lord, before you avenge? Well, the answer is coming. The answer is before us here as we look at these passages. And this last seal that's unsealed leads to seven trumpets and another round of judgments. And when those trumpets are blown, we see this ecological judgment coming out on the earth, on the grass, on the trees, on the fresh water, on the salt water. We see God judging the earth, but even in his mercy, he's only doing it a third. There's still a remnant left, right? And so we see God's mercy and grace in that. And we see this demonic army unleashed that comes and and destroys a third of mankind, it tells us. And in between the fourth and fifth trumpet, like this interlude in between the seals, here's what we hear in Revelation 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the other three angels are about to blow. So these three woes are announced. The fifth trumpet is blown and released with that fifth trumpet come these locusts out of the pit of hell that torment people to the degree that they long to die, the text tells us, but can't. And the angel announces this is the first woe. Then there's a second one. And the sixth trumpet blast releases from the pit this army that comes and slaughters. By counts today of of this world's population count, over two and a half billion, with a B, people would be killed. Massive slaughter. And yet the text is clear that in spite of these repeated disasters and repeated plagues, It says in Revelation 9, verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver or bronze and stone or wood, which cannot see and cannot hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's the hardness of the human heart. Revelation 11, we then see this temple of God, this this separation, if you will, from those who are inside and those who are outside. These two faithful witnesses stand up and proclaim in the very face of the beast. They stand up and proclaim the gospel and they it says that they do that until they are finished with their task. And when they are finished with their task, they are killed. And then three and a half days later, they're raised and, and brought up to heaven by God. And then we hear this, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming. And so this third woe announces this by this angel includes this seventh trumpet blast, okay, that we saw in Revelation chapter 11. And with that trumpet blast then comes this announcement. And this is important, church. Hold on to this truth. Hold on to this truth in light of the end. Hold on to this truth in light of today and everything you see going on in this world. Here's this announcement in Revelation 11:15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Our Lord and his Christ are ruling and reigning today. Now, yes, it's an invisible kingdom. At times it seems to be absent. But Jesus told us those parables about the yeast that works its way through, little by little, slowly working through, until all the leaven takes its effect. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. And God is ruling and reigning. We hold on to that truth. And the fact that he is ruling and reigning then tells us that one day that kingdom will be visible to all. That was the first thing that John told us in the book of Revelation when we were back in chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Why would that happen? Why would the tribes of the earth wail? They would wail because of what we're about to see. Starting in Revelation chapter 16. They would wail because of the demonstration of God's just and holy wrath. They would wail because of what we see unfolding. And, and what we're hearing in this chapter, as I'm going to read it here in just a second, is, is echoes of Exodus, okay? As you read this, you ought to think back to the Exodus. Think back to the slavery. Think back to Pharaoh. Think back to the hardness of his heart. Think back to the plagues. Think back to the Passover lamb that was slain. Think back to the angel of death coming through and killing the firstborn, but not those who are covered with the blood. Think about that exodus. Think about the Israelites coming to the edge of the Red Sea, pursued by an enemy they could never defeat on their home, on their own. Think about the fact that God led them to a place where anybody under any circumstances, understanding anything about military strategy, would say, that was dumb. Why bring them to an ocean, to a body of water, with no exit strategy? Well, there was an exit strategy. And God's about to work it so that the glory will go to him alone, right? <laughs> so think about those things as we, as we read this account. And think about this, that we should... And will, if we're in Christ, worship God because of his wrath. Because that wrath is a demonstration of his character, of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his justice, and of his love. So let's, let's look at Revelation 15. It's the shortest chapter in the, in the book. All right? And then I saw, okay, those, those three little words there are important as you try to divide up Revelation and see where these natural divisions come, these, these visions, these, these kind of points in the Scriptures where John looks, where he sees, where there are these changes in direction, changes in attention. Verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Just a contextual point there. The best translations, according to Greek scholars, would translate that word not beside but standing on. Okay? It, it's not that big a deal, but in some ways it is. All right? So... Your version may say standing on the sea of glass. The ESV translates it standing beside, but I, I think it's better to, to understand. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the image, conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing, standing on the sea of glass or standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. 
and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So let's work our way through this text and just kind of look at those same divisions. Verse 1 John says, then I saw. Verse 2, John says, then I saw. And then down in verse 5, John says, after this, I looked. So those are how we're going to divide the text up. In verse 1, he saw another sign in heaven. Remember, there's these signs throughout the book of Revelations, as there are in the book, in the Gospels. These signs that point to something else, point to a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. There's symbolism in this, okay? So this, this sign, and he looks. And he sees this sign in heaven. In 12.1, chapter 12.1, there was the sign of the woman. In chapter 13, there was the sign of the beast. And here's what I think we need to take from these signs, from these changes in perspective. This is the perspective of heaven at what is going on on the earth. And church, we need the perspective of heaven. Amen? We need the perspective of God. When we look at this world and what's going on around us and this perspective of heaven and what is happening on the earth and what is about to happen as a result of the judgment of God, it is great, he says. The idea is that it's it's splendid. It is it is something done on a grand scale. One 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 scholar says it's beyond anything men can do. So it is it is great. Mega is, is the word. It is also amazing. It is marvelous. Not only is it beyond what men can do, it's beyond what men can understand. We can't even comprehend how amazing it is. And this amazement is something that is a combination both of of peace and terror. It's a combination of of peace and and peril. All right? I couldn't think of anything that that demonstrated this as well as... um, Michelangelo's last judgment in the Sistine Chapel on the altar wall. This this picture that you have on the slide there, it, it, it's just a stunning, stunning thing to stand in front of and see it. Because what's on that wall is this massive portrayal of this end time judgment. And there seated at the center of it is, is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And surrounding him are saints celebrating and angels rejoicing. And below him are the demons, the devil himself, and those who are perishing. And it's just this massive, it's it's sensory overload. It's just incredible to stand there and look at it and, and just see these images. These things are helpful for me. And I think they would they are for a lot of people and just kind of getting a visual of, of what I see here. And, and 
you can kind of see it down in down in the bottom right hand corner there. Pull that one up there. And so this this one picture, there's all this celebration and then there's this misery. There's this picture of damnation. On the face of this poor soul. Being drugged to hell by the demons. They've got hold of his legs and his ankles. Dragging him down. So this scene that we have here is amazing. It's great. It's a combination of, of terror and of praise. It's, it's incredible. Seven angels. Seven plagues. Again, it's the full number. We've seen numbers a lot in Revelation. We'll continue to see them. It's this full number. It is the completion, okay? It's the completion of God's wrath. There's nothing missing here. It's the completion of God's wrath. And the word there, with them the wrath of God is finished, is that word telos that we've used a lot in different in different studies, in different books of the Bible. It's the idea that it's fulfilled, it's completion. It's come to the end that it was determined it would be. Okay? There's nothing rash here. God is not out of control in a temper tantrum. This is the determined end. It has been planned. And it is now being done. With it, it says it is finished. But remember what we saw back over in chapter 14. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, it says in verse 11, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. God's wrath is finished, but it will be on display for all of eternity. For all of eternity. Seven angels, seven plagues, the end of God's wrath. Look at the next section. We have the sea, the overcomers, and this new song of deliverance that they sing. John says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So there's this sea of glass and it's a contrast. Jason did a great job pointing this out when we were in chapter 13. It's a contrast between this raging sea from which this beast arises. Psalm 2, the nations rage. The kings of this earth plot in vain. So there's this raging turmoil of rebellious humanity. That's the symbolism there. The seas are raging because souls of men are raging. They're rebellious. They're violently opposed to God and to his people. They're opposed to each other. Daniel had this vision in chapter 7. In my vision at night, it says in verse 2, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So this churning sea that we see in chapter 13 is contrasted here, as it was earlier, with this sea of glass. Calm. Just completely calm. That's what Ezekiel saw. As he had this vision of heaven spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. That word is overused in our culture, but not in the Bible. And what Ezekiel saw was awesome. It's the same thing we saw in chapter four. There it was before me, it says, like, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So this sea of glass represents calm, but it also represents judgment because it says it's, it's kind of got fire in it. So here's this fiery sea of glass. This, and I, and here's, here's what I take away from that. There is this calm yet hot, white hot 
judgment and wrath of God. Calm. But for those upon whom it's poured out, it's calamitous. It's catastrophic. So it's a combination of calm. And, 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 and I just think about God's mind, God's heart. I was praying this week, God, I need your mind. I need your heart as I process what's going on around me and what's going on in this world. Because God's heart is not in turmoil. That's right. Somebody needs to add. God's heart is not in turmoil. They are not running around in heaven like they're under some sneak attack. Trying to figure out what to do next. There's a calmness. There's a plan. There's a purpose. Even in the judgment and wrath of God. God has not lost control. (laughs) He's not lost control here. He's not lost control in Kabul. And when we see his wrath and judgment poured out, he's not having a three-year-old temper tantrum. It is planned, it is purposeful, and it's flowing from his holy heart. And without this wrath, God would not be God. He would be less than holy. He would be less than just. He would be less than righteous. He would be less than loving. Because above all else, and and rightfully so, he loves his own glory. And for our good, he loves that glory. And he loves his people. And he's made promises to us to hold us, to secure us, to avenge what is done to his people. He would be less than loving were he not a God of wrath and judgment. But Isaiah tells us this is his unnatural. This is his alien work, if you will. This is his response to sin. And it is poured out in such a way that it will bring him glory. It will demonstrate justice like we've never seen before. Because he is a just God, right? That's who he is. And so his love even motivates this wrath. His love is what's being poured out as he's promised to avenge his people. And the context, over in, over in chapter 14, it begins with this this, this number of God's people standing before the Lamb, sealed by Him. Even before the three angels come and bring this message of judgment and this picture of hell. And then in chapter 15, we have this same kind of little pause there. The people of God gathered before God, standing in the confidence and peace of God before judgment is poured out. And the bridge in all of that, the distinction... Between those who are facing the calamity of God and those who are standing calm in the assurance that God gives us is that phrase we see over in chapter 14. Here's a call for endurance for the saints. It's a call for endurance and a promised blessing even for those who die. And I love the fact, and this is the redeemed are standing beside some say, but I... This picture of the redeemed standing on, like Peter walking on the water. Standing on the sea of glass and judgment. They're standing on that. They are secure in the calm of that place and they are secure in the face of that judgment. You see that? They're not fretting. They're not afraid. Yes, there is a holy fear of God. But they are not afraid of what is unfolding before them. They are standing in the peace of Christ, who is the Lamb. They stand in peace there because they understand that by His blood they have been sealed and set apart. They are standing triumphant. Notice what it says. 
They had conquered. They had conquered. They've conquered the beast and the onslaught that came from him. They have, they have conquered because they have not worshipped its image. They've not bowed down to idols. They have conquered, it says there, because they have not succumbed. They have not in any way, it says, compromised themselves. They've not been marked with the mark. They don't bear the characteristics of the beast. And they have conquered. They are overcomers. In Revelation 12, it says they overcame how? How did they do this? They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We'll talk about that in just a second. Who are, who are these who conquer? Remember those seven letters to the seven churches? Flip back over there just a second. Repeatedly, one after the other after the other seven times. All right? In chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. Down in verse uh, 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Later on, it says down in verse 17 to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The church at Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I'll give authority over the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. The church in Sardis in chapter three, verse five, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. To the church in Philadelphia, verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. There's stability there. There's ownership. We're a part of God and a part of what he's doing. And finally, that church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sit on my father's throne. Because the lamb was slain, we're called to walk the path of the cross. Because the lamb was raised, we too are promised resurrection. And because the lamb conquered via that means of the cross, we who put our faith in him also conquer. And as he rules and reigns, so will we. So we can stand calm on the sea, regardless of what it's doing, because of standing in Christ. Do you see that? Wow. What an encouragement that is to us. And they stand in worship. They're singing and playing instruments that God has given them. There's an encouragement there to those of you who play nothing and think you don't sing. All right. He, it, it's God's harps. He, they're playing the harps of God. Okay. Now, no, we're not going to be little angels floating on clouds playing harps. You know, there's there's a purpose, intent. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. But this idea that we are singing because God has enabled us to sing, and we are playing instruments because God has enabled us to play. You know, earlier in Revelation 14, there was the harpist harping with this loud, deafening roar. <laughs> Well, here they're playing these, they're standing in worship. And again, we need to take just a second. Turn over to the book of Exodus. Here's the deal. This book before us is God's redemptive story. And what we read in Revelation should not cause us to wonder what's coming tomorrow. It should cause us to look back and understand based on what's happened in the past, right? 
And in the book of Exodus, we have this picture of God delivering his people and bringing them out of slavery, bringing them into the promised land. But on the way, he is their constant deliverer. He is constantly guiding them. And, and it says in Exodus chapter 14, as the waters came back over the army of the Egyptians and covered them with water, it says in verse 30 of chapter 14, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So there's this focus on the judgment that comes from the hand of God, the wreaking of havoc that's brought on the enemies of God, and because of that, the people's hearts are changed, they fear God. Because of that, the people's allegiances are changed. They, they respect and understand who God's servant is. And because of that, they, they believe the Lord. They walk with Him. Now, granted, we'll, we know the rest of the story in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> but this picture and this song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. Do you get the They're standing there with the bodies of their enemies laying before them, worshiping and singing. That may gross us out in our domesticated culture. But when we stand before the Lamb, and when we see His glory demonstrated in His just judgment, and when we are reminded that but for His grace in our lives, we would be among those casualties, we'll rejoice in His goodness to us. We'll rejoice in the glory demonstrated in His justice. And we will sing like they did. I will, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord, look at this, is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And it goes on to recount, Pharaoh's chariots and the host of his armies went down like rocks in verse 5. God's right hand is glorious in power. It shatters the enemy. The enemy said, verse 9, I'll pursue, I will overtake. <laughs> verse 10, you blew your wind and the sea covered them. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We hear the echoes of Psalm 96 we read earlier. And so here's this picture of God's judgment, of God's demonstration of his power on behalf of his people. And the people of God are worshiping for that. And so with this series of ten plagues, we have seven in, in Revelation 15. But there were ten of them, one after the other after the other. In many ways, a demonstration of God's grace, right? But yet the mystery of God's sovereignty in that he had hardened Pharaoh's heart, and yet Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And as Pharaoh hardens his heart and as God hardens his heart, it brings them to this final showdown. And that final plague where the death comes to the firstborn, this, this strong man Pharaoh, who at one point in time said, who is the Lord? Says to Moses, he begged him, go out from among my people, both you and your people. Go serve the Lord. Take your flocks and your herds and be gone. Now, in the hardness of his heart, he would change his mind and pursue them. And we know the rest of that story. 
Listen, here's the picture in Exodus 15, and here's the picture we have in Revelation. God saved Israel. They did not save themselves, right? It was God's power. It was not the power of God's people. It was God's glory on display. It was not the people's glory at all. They feared God. They worshiped God. They believe in His servant. In Revelation, we have the people of God fearing God, worshiping Him, and believing in the Lamb who was slain. All of this, this powerful demonstration of God, this powerful demonstration of His might. And that song, listen, church, this is something we, we talk about even as we plan our services here. They're not singing about themselves. They're singing about what God has done, who He is, and what He has done for them. Look at what it says. He is great and amazing in His deeds. He is, he is righteous in what He does and in His acts. He is every title we see in the Old Testament of God. He is the Lord God. He is the Almighty. He is the King of the nations. He is powerful. He is sovereign. There is no limit to who He is and what He can do. And because of this, He is the God who is to be feared and glorified because He alone is holy. He alone is pure. He alone is undefiled. And we even see that in the angels coming out of His presence later on here. So who will come and worship this great, amazing, powerful, holy God? Well, look at what the text says. Back in Revelation, it says that all the nations will come and worship you, for you alone are holy. There's a lot of debate about what that means right there. All the nations. Does that mean that all nations, every human being, will one day stand before God worshiping Him? Or does it mean that representatives of all nations will stand before God and worship Him? And I believe the biblical answer to that is that while maybe not the, mo- the, the indication here, that in, in some ways it's, it's true in both ways. We've already seen, have we not, in Revelation chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals? For you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people, it tells us, from all of these people groups, from every tribe and language and people and nation. But then on the other hand, what are we told in Philippians chapter 2? That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So the the worship is the distinction. Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord includes those who are being judged by that Lord Jesus. And every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, including those who are singing the song of the Lamb from Revelation 5. So make no mistake. One day every president, every emperor, every mullah, every man, woman, child will kneel and bend their knee before Jesus. It will happen. Some saved by that amazing grace that we sing about. And some judge because they've refused that. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. I've thought about that a lot this week. Those people who stand there in the calamity of God's judgment will stand there because they've done nothing in regard to a faith response to Jesus. Whereas those redeemed will stand there because they've done nothing. They didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. 
But by God's grace working in our hearts, we simply trusted in Jesus and received it. Isn't that something? Damned because they did nothing with Jesus. Saved because we did nothing. It was all Jesus. Wow. One way or another, God will be worshipped, church. And the end of it kind of leads us then into Revelation chapter 16. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. By the way, this is the true tabernacle, okay? This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus entered by way of his, his flesh, the veil. Enter into this tent of witness where that Ark of the Covenant set in the Old Testament tabernacle. Heaven was opened, it says. Verse 6, out of the sanctuary comes the seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and golden sashes around their chest. They, they come out reflecting the character of God, God's holiness, God's beauty, God's purity. They come out reflecting that as will everyone and everything who is in God's presence. And there's, a, there's an order here, all right? Again, there's no rush. There's not one angel running in there and grabbing a bowl and coming out. It's not enough, guys. We need one more. And then the second angel running in and running out because there's not enough. What are we going to do next? Oh, here's the th- No, no, no. There's an order. There's this beautiful pattern of God's purposes being carried out. There's reverence. And there's this central picture, as we saw in chapter 4, of the throne of God, the presence and the power of God. And this elder, or this creature rather, comes out from the very presence of God with these seven bowls full of wrath. We'll see more of that in the next chapter. Do you see it's all coming from God? It's all coming from His throne? He's purposed it. He's planned it. He's orchestrating it. He's carrying it out. We rest in that. We trust in that. And the smoke of God fills the temple, just like it did in the tabernacle with Moses, just like it did in the temple with Solomon. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, it says in Exodus 40. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses couldn't enter in. In 1 Kings 8, the priest had to withdraw from the holy place because the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And it says no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And that sentence moves our attention now to what's coming next. All right, everything's on pause for just a second. Until we see what's about to be poured out. Let me give you three quick points of application for this, okay? First, for the unbeliever, if you've never put your faith and confidence in Jesus... This fire that's a part of this sea of glass, let me just say you're in a season of grace. Listen to me. You're in a season of grace. And that season of grace will last as long as your breath does. And then it's done. There's no second chances. There's no other opportunity. And God's unusual alien work of judgment that it talks about in Isaiah chapter 28 will be the work that you will see. So I invite you to trust in Jesus today. Repent of your sins and in faith turn to Him. Come talk to me or one of the other guys at the end of the service and we'll talk about that. Turn to Jesus. For the church, for the believer, three words. First, humility. Humility. 
The Israelites did nothing but just stand and watch God work. And those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will stand in awe and amazement. And I believe part of that awe and amazement will be the fact that by grace we have been saved. And that through faith, not by works, not by anything that we have done. Humility. Humility. Church, there's a great deal of humility called for us, even as Christians, as we see and watch what unfolds in other countries around the world. Sin is sin. The sin of the terrorist and the sin of the gossip. And so there needs to be a level of humility among the people of God as we see what sin has done in this world and what it does in the hearts of humanity. Humility. Secondly, endurance. We will stand on the sea and we will do it in absolute victory. We are conquerors and overcomers because Jesus is our conqueror and our overcomer. Amen. He is our champion. And we're called to endurance. We're called to constantly strive. We're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But we do so because of the grace and the means of grace that he has given us. And these saints in Revelation who overcame by the blood of the Lamb also overcame by the word of their testimony. They held on to the gospel. And they held on to the gospel in the way they lived. They loved not their lives more than death. Meaning they loved Jesus and his purposes and his things above anything else. Endurance. And then urgency, humility, endurance, and urgency. In light of the coming judgment, church, how can we be casual with our neighbors and with our family and with the people around us who are facing what we are seeing unfolding in Revelation and we'll see in the chapters that follow? Urgency, compassion, urgency. And finally, for the church, sing, church. Oh, my word, sing. Sing for God's grace. Sing for God's justice. Worship and sing the songs that reflect the character of God, the work of God. God has given us an instrument. I know some of you are not soloists, but you're singing, you know, make a joyful noise with the rest of us, okay? This is one of the problems with virtual worship. Okay? I understand the times and I understand the need. To, you know, I read an article this week. Fifteen reasons your soul needs to be gathered for worship, not just live stream. I'll post it. It was encouraging. But one of the reasons, I think it was reason number 14, is because perhaps you can hear the congregation sing through your speakers at home, but that is not the same as hearing those voices around you. And the same goes for reciting scripture. There is a necessary artificiality built when those things are done and you're just observing them, he says, in your living room. We need to hear each other sing. Our community needs to hear us singing. Our world needs to hear believers singing. So God, fill us with your spirit. And it doesn't matter if you can't carry a tune. All right? doesn't matter. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this word in Revelation. It is timely, Lord. It is timely for where... We are as a, as a, as a community of faith. It's timely for where we are as a, as a country. It's timely for where we are, where we are, Lord, as a culture. It's timely for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, especially in a place like Afghanistan. And again, we pray for them today. Father, take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and let it bear fruit. Father, if there's anyone that's not trusted in Jesus, 
Father, work in their soul and turn them to you today. Grant repentance. Give us faith to believe. And as your church, God, give us faith to be humble, to endure, and to be urgent in sharing the gospel. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.